So I want to spend some time today, uh, we're just going to quickly rip through a section out of Mark 8, which is Mark 8 verse 11 to 30. Um, so you can follow along uh, in your Bibles or on the screen. Uh, this is a particularly entertaining section of Mark. I think it's one of the funniest sections in the Bible, to be honest. Uh, but maybe you don't have my sense of humour and you might think it's not that funny, but I think it's really funny. So we'll get there. The Pharisees came and began to argue with Jesus. It's like Groundhog Day, isn't it? You seen that movie? So we get up the next day, eh, let's do the same thing again. And no one's argued with Jesus for a few days, so it's time for an argument. Uh, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit. You know, the sense of the, uh, the Greek word behind this uh, sighing deeply is kind of... Uh, it's like a groan, you know. It's like, oh, not again. Uh, and he said, why does this generation seek a sign? And uh, truly, I, he says, uh, truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. You know what the Greek sense of this phrase is kind of like? Over my dead body. <laughs> All right? It's kind of got that kind of sense to it. Uh, truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread. They had only one loaf with them in the boat. This is like a nice little piece of narration there by Mark. It's just like, there's going to be something go down about bread. All right, just tipping you off. And Jesus cautioned them saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Clearly Jesus is being metaphorical, right? And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. I, I just think that's funny. Just think that's classic, you know. They got God sitting in their boat and he's just waxing eloquent with them and they're just going... Did you bring a loaf? I left, it, I left it on the bench, man. You're supposed to pick it up on the way out the door. You know, it's gone to this, this kind of discussion. Uh, and Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you've, you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? And having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? The answer to that is, no, they don't understand yet. And they came to Bethsaida and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on them, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say Elijah and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them not to tell anyone about him. Who here has seen the uh, kids' movie, Horton, Here's a Who? You seen it? It's a great movie. It's an outstanding movie, I think. It's one of the best movies on faith and doubt. Uh, Horton, Here's a Who goes like this. In the jungle of Newell, the elephant Horton hears a voice in a speck. He uses a clover to rescue and catch the speck of dust and he makes contact with the mayor of Whoville. Horton discovers that in that tiny speck there is a city crowded with creatures and he decides to leave Whoville in a safe place. However, there's an evil kangaroo 
Anyone here know an evil kangaroo? Yeah, some of you might. Um, the evil kangaroo does not believe Horton's story and thinks he's dangerous for the children of Mill, making them believe in what they cannot see, hear or feel. And he incites, sorry, and she incites the animals against Horton. What you've actually got going in the Horton Here's a Who movie is a really, really close parallel to what actually happens in our world between faith and unbelief. You may have uh, noticed there in that last phrase that I said there that the kangaroo says that if you can't see, hear or feel it, it doesn't exist. And that is a really common argument that atheists make against the uh, reality of the Christian faith and the existence of God. So uh, what I'm going to do later on is I'm going to refer back to Horton Here's a Who and we'll watch a couple of clips out of it because uh, there's some really interesting stuff that goes on. Overall though, it's a great story about faith and unbelief and what to do in the midst of a time where everyone else disagrees with you. I mean, that's kind of the story of the movie, is that Horton is the only one who actually knows the truth and everyone else thinks that he's stupid. That's kind of the, the, the bottom line of the plot. Um, and the way that Horton handles it is uh, interesting. But in Mark 8, we actually learn three things about faith, I think. We learn about the nature of faith, we learn about the contagion of unbelief, and we learn about the gift of sight. Number one, the nature of faith. Here's a story. The Pharisees rock up and their job in this, their self-appointed role is we need to test Jesus, all right? Because we haven't tested God enough. He's been coming through, so he obviously hasn't had a hard enough test. So they rock up and they give Jesus a bit of a test. What's interesting about this is you would kind of think that Jesus had his test with the devil in the wilderness, right? No, no, see, this just keeps going. The thing just keeps rolling on and tests keep rolling out for Jesus. Now, you might remember a couple of weeks ago, I said the reason why tests keep rolling out is because Jesus is the true human who gets tested because he's part of royalty, because that's what happens to royalty is they get tested and he keeps coming through on the test. And you might say, well, why is there no testing in the Old Testament after the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden? You know why? Because the lesson that we learn from humanity in the Old Testament is that humanity always fails the test. That's what happens. This happens all the time. So you've got this failure of the test by Adam and Eve in the garden. They were kind of the royalty back here, part of God's royal family. They fail the test. You have a long succession of test failures. And then the true man shows up. The true human shows up. He gets tested and he resists the test. And the tests keep coming. And the Pharisees are putting it out in front of him and it makes Jesus groan. <laughs> this is a little bit like um, the statement, I wonder if you've ever heard this statement where people say, prove to me that God exists. Have you ever heard that one? You know what that really says at a whole bunch of levels is it says, I don't believe God exists and you have to give me evidence that's so strong that I'll believe something that I don't want to. You with me? I reckon this is what the Pharisees are doing to Jesus. They're rocking up and you might go, well, how is this telling me about the nature of faith? Well, it kind of does, but it does in a backwards way, all right? The Pharisees are really saying, you do a tricky trick and change my mind. I don't like you, I don't believe in you, I don't trust in you, but I want you to do a trick that's going to force me to change my mind. The, um, the problem with the word faith in our culture is this. It gets connected to other words like blind, or leap off, okay? But if you go back to the original meaning of uh, the Greek word behind faith here, you get the sense of trust, okay? 
And so belief is about a kind of trust. Now, if you, can you actually go up to someone and provide enough evidence for someone who's decided that they don't want to believe something? Can you? That's kind of what they're doing here, right? And let me ask another question. Can you make someone trust you that doesn't want to trust you? What happens if you try to make them trust you? It gets worse, yeah. You lose more trust. Do you get that? So what the Pharisees are actually doing is they're putting something in front of Jesus that's impossible to do. Do you see that? He can't, there's nothing that he would be able to do to present before them that would actually change their minds because the issue actually isn't about evidence. The issue is about their unbelief, their inclination, the fact that they don't like him and they don't believe in him and they don't trust him. Nothing actually at the end of the day can satisfy unbelief and you can't force someone to trust you who doesn't trust you. Now, what's fascinating is that Jesus in another place, in Matthew, actually talks about the kind of trust that is required to see him. All right? I think we're all, we probably could all agree. Is everyone with me about the fact that the Pharisees don't get Jesus? Is everyone happy with that? I mean, the disciples don't, but the Pharisees definitely don't. They don't see him, they don't see what he's like. And I think what actually happens, and I'll probably talk a little bit more about this later, but there's something about trusting Jesus that opens up this vista that you just haven't even imagined was there. And you see something that's so colourful and you see that it's a scene that's absolutely beautiful. Does anyone understand what I'm talking about? Because, and some of you maybe even at the moment is kind of going, well, I'm actually in a period of doubt and actually I'm, I'm not really trusting him and I'm kind of opting for the scepticism within my own heart as opposed to the trust. And it's kind of like the, the fog moves in, you know, the Highfields fog moves in and you can't see out, you know, you just kind of go, well, I can't see Jesus, I don't, he doesn't look that good to me anymore, and you just kind of go, listen, you know, one of the things that you need to sort out here is you've just got to decide in your heart of hearts that you're just going to go all in with him and throw your lot in with him. Well, he kind of says this in Matthew 18, doesn't he? Listen to this. Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will what? What's that word? Never. So, listen, linger on that think about that jesus is saying if you actually don't become like a little child in your faith and your trust in him you will never never absolutely never enter the kingdom of heaven yeah we can look at that and just go, yeah i know that yeah i know that scripture pete you know i read that for my devotions last week you know kind of i got yeah that's all good i got it now listen, I mean, how trusting is a child? Let's just think about that. Completely, aren't they? Like completely? I mean, that's, I mean, you heard it said before. People say, kids will get up on top of a, a, you know, a climbing gym or something and they'll say to their dad, catch me, and they'll just jump off. All right? Jesus is saying it's like that. You don't get in unless you jump off without reservations, like a kid. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And this from Matthew 5. Blessed are the pure in heart. What do they get to do? They get to see God. Now, it kind of scares us a bit, isn't it? It's like, really? Like, I've got to be like a child? And it's, yes. You know? Now, the interesting thing is, I think, 
Um, the Pharisees are being childish, <laughs> but they weren't being childlike. There's a big difference there. You know? And some of us would probably sit here and just go, yeah, look at those guys. They're not really getting it right. But I want to ask the question today, just to make it personal, because Jesus always makes it personal. Is there any way that we actually test Jesus, like the Pharisees? Now, I'm not calling you Pharisees, right? That would be weird. But is there any way that we test Jesus like the Pharisees? What about this? Do you ever have times in your life where you're waiting for Jesus to do something miraculous before you move in the direction that he wants you to move in? And you know that he wants you to move in it. What about this one? Have you actually given 100% to Jesus? Or have you just reserved a little bit? And I'm not saying to have a go at you. I'm just going to, we can sit here and just kind of go, yeah, stupid Pharisees. <laughs> but no, what's actually going on? Well, I'll tell you what, you know, I reckon we're a bit more like junior high school boys than what we think. All right? Now, let me tell you about junior high school boys. You know what a lot of junior high school boys will do in the, at an athletics carnival if they know that they can't win? They won't put their full effort in. Why? Because if they put their full effort in and they don't win, everyone's going to look around and go, is that all you've got? And sometimes, I reckon we're just a little bit like that. We just kind of say to God, I don't want to just put it all in just in case I get put to shame for following you. And I think that's a big struggle for a lot of us. I'm just going to reserve 5%, you know. And, you know, if I said to you, do you really give everything to Jesus? You go, well, I'm doing this and this and this and this and this and I'm doing that and that and that and that and this and this and this and this. And Jesus would say, everything. Like even that last 5%. Okay, are you willing to go the full tilt and be a fool for Christ? That's kind of what he's saying. He's like, and there's something about what you get to see and what you get to be in that becomes this beautiful vista that you're part of. So I wonder whether you reserve that 5%. Like, you know, like Jesus shows up on the first at 5, 10 years tomorrow afternoon. Do you get what I'm saying? It's like, really, if he showed up on the news, I'd give him that last 5%. Or if he just showed up, literally, if he just... I remember hearing a story about a pastor who reckoned Jesus showed up every morning when he had a shave. I don't know what it had to do with shaving, but Jesus likes shaving people, maybe. I don't know. Shave my head. Um... Do you get what I'm saying? Like it would be, you know, Jesus is, is, is kind of showing up there and we kind of go, yeah, well, I would, you know. Like I think 95% is pretty good. If he re- like if it was really, really real, I'd give him the last five. And all I'm suggesting to you, and I'm not having a go at you, I'm just saying if you think that way, you're kind of a bit like the Pharisees who are kind of going, make me, make me give you the last bit. Be, do something tricky to make me give you the last bit. See, that's not really childlike faith. And you know what you miss out on? Is you miss out on seeing God in a way that would, be, that would blow your mind, probably, you know, if you just really gave yourself fully to Him. And I'm not saying maybe a whole bunch of you do. I probably identified in my own life where I just go, I am like the junior high boys. I just go, I'm just going to reserve just a little bit. Maybe it's not 5% for you. Maybe it's just 2% or 1%. You say, just that little bit. I'd give him that if he really did something special for me. (laughs) 
At the uh, Sonnegild house um, a little while ago, I um, asked one of my boys about this yesterday, but, uh, and he said he was happy for me to share it. So um, I've, I've decided that I've got a seat at the table, all right, at the head of the table, because I'm really excited about my boys growing up to be men, being in charge of their own family, and actually being the leader. But at the moment, I'm the leader of the family, and God's the one who's made me the leader of it. And um, it's amazing how many people want to sit in that seat at my house now, now that that's kind of the leader's seat, if that makes sense. Is everyone with me? And there's a, um, there's a sense here with the Pharisees that they're trying to make, they're trying to get into Jesus' seat, right? They're trying to get into God's seat. It's like, you've got to do something for us. You've got to serve us. You've got to be the servant uh, and we're going to be the ones in charge. That's the kind of thing that's actually going on here um, with the Pharisees. And it, the reason why, uh, I want to get to this whole concept that unbelief is contagious. It is a contagion. And the reason why that's the case is because we like to be in control and it kind of tickles our pride. So I'm not going to go uh, through the story there again. But suffice to say this, Jesus says, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod. You know what he's saying? Beware of unbelief. Unbelief is this contagious thing. And you can just pick it up from people all over the place. I think that you can catch trust and faith in God, but I actually think that probably unbelief is far more powerful than faith and trust in God to catch. All right? And I think there's some good reasons why it's, um, it's so much more powerful. And when you look at Jesus, when he says the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod, you just need to know that almost all of the time, yeast in the Old Testament was a bad thing. All right? It wasn't a good thing. It was always up to something bad. And here's uh, where I want to show you a clip from Horton. Here's a who. Okay? So what I want you to notice as you watch this clip, goes for about four minutes or so, is I want you to notice that the mayor of Whoville is the one who's actually talking to Horton and he knows the truth that they're in trouble and he's trying to convince the rest of the people in Whoville that there's a problem. Off to the side are some guys who are the unbelievers of the, the whole Whoville and Horton thing. And they're just ripping on, uh, ripping on the mayor of Whoville. Here we go. Uh, Horton, are you okay? Uh, well, more or less. What happened? The bird? Yeah, it attacked me. Mayor, your people are in danger. Huh. You know what? I'm going to do it. I am going to go out there and tell them what is going on. Perfect. Now, quick, get going. Hey, Mr. Mayor, something's wrong. My basement is in the attic. The science museum is history. The lost and found is missing. I'm declaring a state of emergency. Don't worry. Don't worry. The mayor is just being a moron. Whoville is in terrible danger. Everyone needs to get down to the underground storage area immediately. Fine. Fine. Let's do this democratically. Who wants the joy and glory and festivity of the Who Centennial to proceed as planned? Yeah! 
like the mayor. That thinks it would be better to spend the Hoosentennial in an underground storage area. Yeah! <laughs> Wait! You've got to listen to me! Our whole world could explode! <laughs> Much more quickly! And our world wouldn't make that noise! <laughs> the people have spoken, Mr. Mayor. You're finished. No one believes you. No one supports you. <laughs> Horton believes me. Horton? <laughs> Who's Horton? Horton is a giant elephant in the sky. Don't bother looking, he's invisible. And he's the one risking his life to get Whoville, which, by the way, is a speck on a clover, to safety! <laughs> I can prove it! Horton's voice comes out of this horn! Horton! I have all the Who's gathered in Town Square! Let them know you're there! Gee, <laughs> this is kind of a high-pressure situation, then. <laughs> wow, I am really drawing a blank here. I know! <laughs> Horton! Horton, we're waiting! Time to show everyone that you exist and... By extension, what a non-boob I am. <laughs> Wait! Everyone, look at the wind! What do you think that that means? It means... Um, it means... Obviously, we were... Uh, let the kite-flying race begin! So I'm sure you can see I'm the so parallels to the, uh, the biblical story about Jesus, all right? You've got this one guy who actually knows what the truth is, and then you've got these critics on the side, these unbelievers of what the truth is, who are spreading the unbelief. And you can kind of see how powerful it is in that scene. So I want to ask the question, why is unbelief so contagious? And I want to suggest you some reasons why unbelief is so much more contagious than belief here's the first one it doesn't actually require anything of you you can be a skeptic and you can criticize stuff and you cannot believe in something and that can just you don't have to do anything really um, it's not calling upon you to do anything all you've got to do is come up with crazy questions every now and then or comments to shame people who actually believe something um, you can have an authoritative position and other people will be inferior i mean this stuff kind of connects in with who we are uh, at, a, at a kind of fallen level as human beings. It's like, yeah, like, you want to be in control? Do you want to be the one in charge? Yeah, you do, all right? So one way you can do that is to criticise other people and spread kind of unbelief. Uh, you don't need to submit to anything when you don't believe anything. You can kind of see that um, in the story there of uh, Horton Hears a Who, that they don't have to do anything. They can just keep going on with their lives the way that they're going, um, and they don't actually have to do anything. If they believe the truth that the mayor's saying, they have to do something. You don't, you appear intelligent. That's nice to look intelligent, all right? 
and unbelief, you can appear intelligent, right? The deal with the Pharisees is that they're always asking Jesus questions and the rule normally is the one who asks the questions looks the smartest. But obviously Jesus turns the tables on that and makes them look pretty dumb sometimes. Uh, you don't need an argument for anything, really. You just need an argument or a question or a criticism of other people and why the other things don't um, kind of work and why they're so dumb. Uh, Richard Dawkins is a, is a great one at this. He'll just attack other people and basically, if you ever watch anything by Dawkins on YouTube, he just spends most of his time saying that religious people of any sort are just stupid, basically, and doesn't provide a whole lot of arguments or reasons. You can be powerful and in control when you criticise and judge others. Who knows this is true? All right? And that's why unbelief can be so contagious. Um, you don't need to risk anything. I think there's some people who are um, sceptics, and I'm just speaking really broadly of everything, and a large part of the reason why they're sceptics is they're pretty gutless. They're not actually prepared to put anything on the line. Um, another one is that I think um, the temptation of the, uh, the devil in the Garden of Eden of uh, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge you've got an evil, you'll be like God knowing everything is a temptation here as well. Because sceptics can kind of think, I know everything. I'm, I'm covering all the, the bases here and you're just not getting any of them. You're not, you actually don't have some, any good arguments for what you actually think. And the last one I want to throw out to you is it's actually easier to be a parasite than to make a living. You with me on that? That's what scepticism is. Scepticism is being a parasite and not actually making a living. And I think this is why criticism can be such an attractive thing. And this is, I think, why gossip can be really attractive. Gossip is a kind of gutless criticism isn't it? It's like I don't have to hold to anything, I don't have to submit to anything, I can be inferior to you and I can say things about you that kind of rip on you and I don't have to stand up for anything, I don't actually have to risk anything. There's probably no better proverb almost about our age than this one here at the moment, Proverbs 18 verse 2, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding but only in expressing his opinion, isn't it? I mean, we live in a culture that's like, people don't want to have opinion. They don't want to have, an, they don't think objective truth exists and they don't want to actually say anything that's objectively true, but they'd like to just have their opinion and I'll just throw that out there, you know. And then when you kind of hit them up about it, you just go, oh, that's just true for me. I mean, that's just the most sloppy piece of philosophical work out. <laughs> it's like, I can say my opinion and I can be against something, but when I actually am asked to give an account, it's like, oh, that's just true for me doesn't have to be true for you, so we don't have to talk about it. Unbelief is particularly contagious and we need to be careful. And when you give in to the contagion of unbelief, you stop seeing Jesus. Well, what do we see? This is my last point. The gift of sight. I want you to notice something about what Mark is up to. All right? In Mark chapter 8, he tells a story about a blind man, a physically blind man, and then he tells a story about a spiritually blind man. Notice this. Notice the parallelism here. The left-hand side, um, you've got the, uh, the story of the blind man. On the right, you've got the story of the spiritually blind man. And they came to Bethsaida and Jesus went on with the disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. There's a place marker. Number two, do you know what happens here? Partial healing. On the left, you've got the partial healing of the physically blind man. All right? which is actually, I think, I think it may be, from memory, it's like the only partial healing in the whole of this gospel, all right? So it's like he's healed, but people look like trees. 
Have a look on the right-hand side of the screen. Jesus says to the disciples, who do people say I am? Well, some say you're a prophet. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Do you get that? It's like there's a partial sight on the right-hand side in the same way there's a partial sight on the other side. Then notice this. Jesus restores the physically blind man's sight on the right-hand side. He says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you're the Christ. All right? And this is like the hinge of the whole of the Gospel of Mark. Okay? Up until this point, everyone just doesn't get Jesus. And all of a sudden, in one moment of crystal clear clarity, Peter goes, I know who you are. I get you. And all of a sudden, his sight's open. The cataracts have been taken off. And he sees. It's a very, very exciting moment. And then you notice at the end of it, Jesus says the same thing at the end. He says, don't go into the village. Don't tell anyone else about me. Mark wants us to know that Jesus is bringing not just physical, uh, the healing from physical blindness, but the healing from spiritual blindness as well. Ezekiel 12 verse 2 says this, it says, Son of man, you dwell in the midst of a rebellious house who have eyes to see but see not. That's the story in our world. That's, that's what we've seen in Mark. And Jesus has come, as I mentioned last week, like Luke chapter 4 says, he, sa- he announces, I've come to bring healing to blind people in a physical way but also in a spiritual way. And you know what I think is um, really important to note here about Jesus is he always makes it personal. Do you see what happens? Who do people say I am? Ah, some are saying this, some are saying this. Who do you say? And Jesus would say that to all of us today. He'd say, who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? If you're not a Christian here today, Jesus would say, who do you say that I am? If you are and you're following Jesus, he would say that as well. Who do you say that I am? Who do you think I am? I want to show you quite a long clip Honestly, this is a short message, except we've just had long clips. This one goes for about seven minutes, all right? This is the end of Horton, here's a who. And I just want you to notice the parallels between what goes on in this movie and the, uh, the gospel story of Jesus coming and dying for us. And I'd really encourage you, if you've got kids, this is a really, really helpful movie to sit down with your kids and watch and actually have a spiritual conversation about it. Why? Because what's going to happen is your kids and you, probably already, you're going to get out there and everyone else is going to think, sometimes you've been in a place where everyone else just thinks you're an idiot and you're just stupid. And you're probably going to be, well, I think you are exactly living out the reality of Horton Hears a Who, where you're the one who actually can have some sort of sight about what's actually going on and other people can't see. And this is the whole riff here that, that Mark's kind of wanting you to see is people, some people are just really blind. And some people really see. And don't, get, don't catch blindness from the people who are blind. Stay seen. Here we go. Sorry, Martin. I thought it was you that was making all the... But it's... Oh, darn. Run, Lord! 
see you all at once <laughs> you look really great as a horde horton 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 look at the mess you created for yourself all this hullabaloo over a silly little flower it's a speck right i mean it's silly really all this talk of roping you and caging you and well we don't need to go into the details the point is this angry mob of all the trouble you're in it can all go away. <sighs> really? Of course. All you have to do is admit to everyone that there are no little people living on that speck. That you were wrong, and I was right. You do that, and things can go right back to the way they were. But if you don't, you're going to have to pay the price. <laughs> so I just have to say it isn't true. Hmm. Go ahead. Rope me. Cage me. Do whatever you want. But there are people on this speck, and they have a mare who has 96 daughters and one son named Jojo, who all share a bathroom, whatever that is. Oh. And even though you can't hear or see them at all, a person's a person, no matter how small. That was beautiful, Horton. Rope him! Cage him! <laughs> Burn that speck in a pot of boiling diesel! That oil! They don't believe we're here. We've got to make some noise. We are here. 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 Come on. Everybody. We are here. We are here. We are here. Stories about people on specs. Listen, there they are. Robin, it's not working. I can hear you, but their ears aren't strong enough. We need to be louder. Get every who to make noise. Everyone. Jojo, where are you going? We need every voice. Jojo. You need to make some noise down there, or we'll all be destroyed! The mayor grabbed a tom-tom and started to smack it. And all over Whoville, they whooped up a racket. They rattled tin kettles, they beat on brass pans, on garbage pail tops and old cranberry cans. They blew on bazookas and blasted great toots. On clarinets, soupas and boompas and flutes. Please! It's the most beautiful thing ever! I don't hear nothing! <laughs> I don't think so! But keep trying! Oh. I'll never give in! Oh. Are you sure? 
but every who down in Whoville is trying. Jojo. Probably at the old observatory. That yap, oh. that one small extra yap, put it over, and all the who noises burst out of the clover. I, I hear it, Me too. See, in the movie Horton, here's a who. Horton is the Christ figure, isn't he? The hope of Whoville rests upon Horton. And you see at the start of that scene there that Horton has the opportunity to give way and to say, no, it's not true. And Whoville get help, ultimately. I know the little kangaroo kind of catches it, but Whoville ultimately get help because Horton doesn't give in. And Jesus would say to all of us today, he would ask us all, he'd say, who do you say that I am? But do you know before he asks us today in 2015, do you know that people asked him that? The high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? If you are the Christ, tell us. Are you the son of God then? Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? And do you know his answer to that is the hope of the world, isn't it? That he doesn't give in while they rape him and they cage him and they kill him. He doesn't give in. <laughs> 